You are listening to the Sojourn Church Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to view a video version of this message, please visit our website, sojournchurch.org. If you're not familiar, I work for an organization called Wall Builders. And Wall Builders is uh, not connected with Donald Trump at all. Uh, It's something that we have to clarify now because of building walls. That's not what we do. Uh, We take our name from the Bible book of Nehemiah. If you remember, Nehemiah was part of the the Babylonian captivity where Israel was conquered. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And while he's serving the king, Nehemiah looks back and, and saw his nation. And, and, and Jerusalem had been destroyed and it grieved his heart so much. He said, I, I want to I do something to help rebuild my nation. And this was a call God put on my dad's heart more than 30 years ago, looking at America and seeing even back then the breakdown of the religious, the moral, and the constitutional heritage of the nation. And so my dad got very involved. We actually started collecting things from early America. We now have the largest private collection of original documents from American history. We have more than 120,000 things from before 1812. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about America, but in the midst of that, uh, my favorite book is the Bible. So we're going to talk a lot about things from the Bible as well uh, as we get going this morning. And I am very excited as always to have my wife, Gabby. Uh, my daughter, Finley, is off making noise with other one and a half year olds. Uh, and she's awesome too. And I got a bunch of slides I'm going to show you on the screen. Uh, and so fortunately, you don't have to look at me the whole time, but you can look at the screen as we go. And so if I can get slides up there as we go, maybe. Yes. Jesus, much better than me. So I'm going to start with a verse from the gospel of John. You might know John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is a big deal because not only do we have a claim of exclusivity where Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father, which in the world we live in today, there's even a lot of Christians who think that God is so loving right? That that God wouldn't reject people who come by a different path. And I'm just going to clarify, Jesus said he's the only way, right? This isn't a confusing thought, but let me even give you something else where Jesus says in this first sentence, he says that he is truth. This is a really big deal because what it does define for us is that truth actually does exist. In the midst of a relativistic culture that's very subjective about truth, about morality, well, here's what I think or what I feel. Well, this is my truth. There is no your truth. There is the truth and it is rooted in God because God is who truth is. And why does this even matter? Because one of the other things Jesus said in John is that we would know the truth and the truth would produce something in our lives. The truth would bring freedom. Now I would point out it's actually the application of the truth that brings freedom because you can know the truth. And if you don't apply it, it doesn't really help you, right? Where Jesus said in Matthew, many will come to me on the day and say, Lord, we knew you. And he's like, I don't know who you are right? Like you didn't apply anything I taught you. It's the application of truth that brings freedom. And why I point this out is we live in a culture today that isn't sure truth even exists. The majority of Americans think that truth is subjective. They do not think that absolute moral truth or absolute truth does exist. This is a problem for us because the majority of America still professes Christianity, which means that you have Christians saying truth doesn't exist. So what do you do when you have things like the apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 8, where he was charged, challenging and charging the church there at Philippi, he said, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, think about that. We should be thinking about what is true, but this is then where you now have a new question is, well, how do we actually even know what's true, right? Because we live in this very unique time and only unique in the sense of right now, it used to be that not everybody was honest and that's just part of human nature, right? Not everybody always tells the truth and we understand that, that's okay in the sense of 
That's not an expectation I have that everybody's gonna tell the truth all the time. But the problem is now is that you're seeing it on both sides. Because it doesn't matter if you watch CNN or watch Fox, both sides tend to promote what is sensational more than what is true. Because we're trying to get clicks, we're trying to get views, we're trying to get likes. And what happens is now we are dividing the nation so much that it's not about what is true, it's about which side gets to win. The kingdom of God on this earth is not about which side's gonna win. That's already been established. Jesus is gonna win, right? His side's gonna win, that's fine. We've already established that, but his side is truth. So it's not about the side that I like or what I want or my political party or my political whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. The reality is that we need to be pursuing truth and it becomes very difficult in culture and society. And one of the things that has flowed from a lot of the dishonesty, even from the news, is we are seeing now cities being literally destroyed over false narratives, things that didn't even happen, that people are being told happened. Chicago, just a week ago, they said, well, this police officer killed this unarmed 15-year-old boy. Destroy the city. Then the report comes out the next day, oh, yeah, it wasn't a 15-year-old unarmed boy. It was a 20-year-old man who had a gun who fired on the officers. Officers returned fire, struck the individual, he went to the hospital, and they destroyed the city because police killed an unarmed man. None of that was true. We are seeing so much happen in our nation because we don't know what's true anymore because people are not promoting what is true, because we are being lied to. And one of the things that's happening in the midst of all of this, you guys have seen over the last couple of months how statues have been, been torn down. And initially they said, look, we wanna, we wanna tear down statues of people who were racist or people who were slaveholders. And so I understand, like, not that I agree with all this, but I understand the sentiment, I get it. I understand the frustration, but the question mark for me came when we stopped just targeting people that were known to be racist slaveholders. And then you have people like Abraham Lincoln, okay? If you're not familiar with the story of Abraham Lincoln, he was a president, went to a play, it didn't work out very well, right? However, before all of that happened, he was the president who helped end slavery in America. At the end, of slavery in America, there was a group of slaves who had been emancipated under Abraham Lincoln. And they said, we want to honor Abraham Lincoln. And they began raising money and they built a monument, a statue celebrating how Lincoln had brought freedom to slaves. And this was done again, paid for by emancipated slaves that were emancipated under Abraham Lincoln. This was initially built in Washington, D.C. Boston built a duplicate monument because they also wanted to honor and celebrate Abraham Lincoln. And yet you have people in Boston saying, well, this is a racist man and we need to tear it down. And you go, no, that, just wait a second. I, I'm so confused how you're arriving at this conclusion that we have to tear down Abraham Lincoln and it doesn't stop there. Because in Cleveland, Ohio, they have a, a monument to honor the Union soldiers who helped end the Civil War, right? Ending slavery in America. And they said, yeah, these guys are terrible because they were white, therefore we need to destroy this monument. And it goes even in more bizarre places. In California, Ulysses S. Grant, who I will, I will give you, was not always the most honorable and righteous man. This was a very rough dude, right? If you remember the history of the Civil War, Lincoln couldn't win these battles because he didn't have a general who would actually go and fight because most of the generals had been, and the Union side had been friends with generals on the Confederate side. They'd go to West Point together because we used to be one nation. And they said, we don't want to kill our friends. And Grant's like, I'll kill all of them, right? <laughs> this was Grant. So Grant comes and like, he is, he's a, 
rough dude, but here's the point. He is the guy leading the military that defeated the Confederacy, that helped end slavery. And then when he becomes president, do you know all of the things with reconstruction that gave us so many rights to black Americans, to blacks in America? This was done under his presidency. This dude was a hero for blacks in early America. The problem is today, nobody knows his story. And because he's a white guy from early America, we think therefore he had to be evil. And there we get even more bizarre, okay? The Mass 54th was a regiment that was actually Frederick Douglass helped raise this regiment of, of black soldiers. And the Mass 54th was the most drilled, the most disciplined soldiers, arguably in the entire Civil War. And they had to be because they were going up against a culture at that time that even many people on the Union side weren't sure how well a black man could do in battle because black people probably weren't as courageous or as brave or as daring or as intelligent as white people. And so Frederick Douglass helping raise his regiment and other people involved, right? Sergeant William Carney, a lot of people involved said, hey, we have to show everybody is wrong on this. And the Mass 54th, when they go into battle, they prove everybody wrong. So many Medal of Honor winners in the Civil War came from the Mass 54th, this black regiment, these were heroes. And yet we're destroying a monument of black hero soldiers because we think it's racist. Like we are so dumb. <laughs> it is painful, right? It is painful watching this ignorance around us, even to the extent Frederick Douglass. Like if you are against racism and slavery, you should erect more of his monuments, not tear them down. But what we are seeing is now we are, we are even being lied to about why we are removing history. Because now it's, it's not really about what was racist or, or about slavery. Now it's really ultimately about destroying America. This is part of a Marxist ideology. And absolutely the idea is you want to divide, you want to destroy, and you, you get in different groups and you make the groups go against each other. And that's how you bring a nation down. And that's how we destroy capitalism. That's how we enter in socialism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is absolutely what is happening in the nation because there's no way you can explain we're tearing down Frederick Douglass's statue because he was a racist slaveholder. Uh, no, right? He had been a slave. He got freed. He helped fight in abolition, ending slavery in America. I mean, it was incredible in what he did but this is the point is we don't know this. And this is what's even being said about the founding fathers. We don't even know who these founding fathers were. We don't know most of their stories. We don't know the context of the time in which they lived. And yet we're saying all these guys are bad. So you have people like Caesar Rodney, his statue is being removed. And here's the thing I always wanna ask people. Do you know why you are removing his statue? <laughs> oh, cause he was a white racist guy. How do you know? Cause he lived in early America. Okay, newsflash. Not everybody that lived in early America was a right, white racist. There certainly were some, but we don't even know their story. The reason Caesar Rodney was celebrated is he was from a state, Delaware, that when, when we were at the American Revolution voting on whether or not to separate from Great Britain, his state was divided because they only had two delegates there. And one delegate was in favor, one delegate was against, and they needed this state to be able to push them over the top to now we had enough votes so we could actually separate from Great Britain. Word got to Caesar Rodney. He made this midnight ride more than 40 miles on horseback. He gets there in time to vote the next day when they re-vote. And his vote is the one that decided that America would separate, that decided freedom, that ultimately led forward with this notion that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. He's the guy who his vote set this over the top. That's the reason he was celebrated. 
He wasn't celebrated for other things in his life, although there could have been other things, or he wasn't celebrated because he was a white racist slave owner. That's not why he was celebrated. He was celebrated for what he did to help America become a free nation. Today, we don't know that. Or you look at people like George Washington, the father of the nation. Well, we know he had slaves. It's interesting to me that no historian considered Washington racist until about the last 20 or 30 years. That's just interesting. So what have we discovered in the last 20 or 30 years that nobody else knew? And I will tell you, it's nothing new. We've just changed the attacks and the way that we contextualize history or even Thomas Jefferson, right? Because this is the bottom line. All the founding fathers we say are bad and evil. Now, I disagree with that, and I will give you some explanation why in a second, but let me just go beyond the founding fathers. Okay, so I get the attack on the founding fathers. I think it's wrong, and I can show you why it's wrong. But then you have people who weren't exactly founding fathers signers of declarations, but helped us in the revolution. Because during the American Revolution, there were roughly 20 different nations that sent people over to help us fight against Great Britain. Because at that time, Great Britain's the most powerful military in the world. And so every other nation's like, yes, we will help you fight them. We hate them too. So we had Polish people, Polish military officers coming to America. And I'm not sure that I'm saying his name right. If anybody's from Poland, you can help correct me later, right? But this is a Polish-American hero of... Kosciusko, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. However, what's crazy about this dude is when he came to America, he was an abolitionist. He actually helped with the abolition movement. He actually wrote Jefferson many letters where he and Jefferson talked about how bad slavery was. And in his will on his death, he said, I want my estate to be sold and I want the money to be sent to America to help emancipate slaves in America. Okay, this dude was anything but a racist and he did not own slaves in his whole life. Or you have people who even just fought in the revolution. We don't even know their stories because this is the tomb of an unknown soldier from the American Revolution. We don't even know he is, much less do we know that he was a racist person, but if he's from early America, it must be bad. Therefore, we have to attack it, we have to destroy it. This is the sentiment we hear right now. This is what we are seeing in our nation. It's not about what is true. It's about destroying something that has been established. And I have no problem opposing things that are bad because as Christians, we should oppose injustice. We should oppose oppression. We should oppose racism. We should oppose things that are evil because that's what God does, right? We should do that. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem when we're dishonest about what we're doing and we're destroying things in the name of dishonesty. That doesn't make sense. And so one of the attacks that we really hear a lot today is that America's bad, And we hear lots of reasons that America is bad and a lot of them are very silly, but we also hear the founding fathers were evil. And so let me just, to understand, I wanna give some biblical thoughts to all that's happening right now, okay? Because if you look through the Bible, one of the heroes of the Bible is King David. We know he is a hero from the Bible because the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Do you know anybody else in the Bible that is called the man after God's own heart? And if you do, you're reading the wrong Bible because it doesn't say that anywhere else in the Bible. David was the only man after God's own heart. Now, what we know about David is David, number one, was a pretty awesome warrior because before he goes up to kill Goliath, right? He tells Saul, I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear. This giant will be no problem. And it's estimated David was between about 14 and 17 years old when he killed Goliath, which means... It was before 14, he's already killing lions and bears. And let me just walk you through this for a second. Because pastor was talking about hunting earlier. I love to hunt. But I'm just gonna tell you, I have guns. (laughs) And I am still at times, I would be scared of lions and bears. This dude had a stick and a rock. (laughs) 
Like, he is a legit warrior, okay? This is next level. I'm not ready. I don't even want to be there. This dude is a warrior, and he was an amazing worshiper. One of the things we know, he was anointed in worship because when Saul was possessed by evil spirits, they call on David, and David plays the harp, and Saul finds peace. David also writes the majority of the book of Psalms. David is amazing as a warrior and as a worshiper. This is a really good part of David's life, but the Bible tells us more to the story of David. As you go through, whether it be Samuel or Kings or Chronicles, as you learn more about the story of David, what you also learn is about David's sons. And three of them, for example, you have Amnon, Adonijah, and Absalom. Now, Amnon was the one who had a crush on a sister. He raped a sister. Absalom finds out, and Absalom comes and kills him. And in all of this, David is suspiciously quiet. There's no word from David about what's going on. And then Absalom decides he wants to take the throne from his father. So he fights to take the throne from his father, right? And then he finally gets conquered and defeated. And then Adonijah comes and Adonijah wants the throne from his father. And the very first verse where the Bible introduces Adonijah to us, it says, and Adonijah, comma, the son whom David never corrected, comma, hold up. <laughs> You never once told your son, like, hey, hey, buddy, we don't do that. No, no hey, we, we. you never once corrected him. You know what this tells me? Is you were the worst father in the Bible. <laughs> if you are not the worst father, right, because you have, like, stories like Lot. I mean, there's a, yeah, there, there's a few shady stories, right? If he's not the worst father, I would argue he's at least the runner-up. Because <laughs> he is a terrible father. This is a really bad part of David's life. And the Bible doesn't stop there with telling us how he's a failure as a father. The Bible also tells us about a time when kings go to war and David stayed home and he looked out from his balcony and he saw a woman of unusual beauty bathing and he called her in and he has this affair with Bathsheba, right? And then she gets pregnant. So what do we have to do? We have to kill Uriah the husband because we, we, we can't let this be known. David is an adulterer and a murderer. This is a really, really ugly part of David's life. Now, here's the reason I bring this up. Because as you read the story from the Bible, the Bible does a good job of telling us the whole story. It tells us the good and the bad and the ugly. But what happens in culture today, culture says, well, we can't celebrate people who have done bad things. So let me ask you a question as a Christian. Then how do we celebrate any hero of the Bible? And here's the reason. Because never once do we celebrate their sin. Instead, we celebrate how God used them in spite of their brokenness. And this is where I, we, we have to change our perspective. Because the way we think is, well, if they're not totally honorable, we shouldn't honor them. I understand the thought. But let me back you up to something else the Bible says. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is all of us are jacked up and need Jesus, right? What that also means is anytime I look at anybody in history, my expectation of any great leader, of any hero, of any person in history is this is a person who was jacked up and needs Jesus. So my thought and expectation is not that they need to be perfect. My expectation is, well, of course they messed up. Of course they're sinners. Of course they didn't do it perfect. But that is not why we celebrate anybody from the Bible. It's not why we celebrate anybody from history. Instead, what we do is we celebrate how a perfect God used an imperfect person and did something great through them. Yes. This is what we celebrate. And this is what is lost so much in culture today. 
We don't understand this context or thought anymore. And, and, and even with this, think about for, for just a second, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's known as our faith hall of fame. It's where it goes through and talks about by faith, what, what God did to these people and what they accomplished and by faith and by faith and by faith. And their faith was awesome. These are held up to us as heroes of the faith. But I would point out, there's basically nobody in Hebrews 11 who could be the pastor of your church because they were liars and cheats and adulterers and prostitutes and murderers. They were a group of pretty jacked up people. So why are they heroes of the faith? I think God highlights them to give us hope because we see how imperfect they were and how poor decisions they made and yet God still used them and and God still acknowledged their faith was great in these moments when they stepped up for what was right and they did something significant. Their faith was great. It gives us hope as believers that it's not because of my goodness that God uses me, right? Because I'm not saved through my works. I know I'm jacked up and need Jesus, but that's why Jesus came and God does not mind using messed up, jacked up, broken vessels because that's the only option he's ever had apart from his son. Right? He's actually gotten pretty good at doing that. And let me give you one more thought from the Bible that's important for us to understand context, even when it comes to history. If you go to example, the, the story of Noah, the Bible tells us with Noah. Now remember for Noah's time, okay? God is destroying the entire world to start over because everybody is so messed up. And when we learn about Noah, what the Bible says in Genesis 6 time is, is Noah was a righteous man. But what it says in that subsequent line is he was blameless in his generation. So he was righteous, blameless in his generation. Here's what I think is so interesting. It says he was blameless where? In his generation. Was Noah actually blameless? Well, let me just pause you before you guess and remind you when Noah lands the ark on Mount Ararat and he gets off and he has his covenant with God and there's a rainbow and it's awesome and it's great. What does Noah do that night? He gets drunk and passes out naked. That is not blameless. <laughs> so, so why does the Bible say he was blameless? The Bible doesn't say he was blameless. The Bible says he was blameless in his generation. That's context. It doesn't say Noah never messed up, but it says compared to everybody else, Noah was pretty awesome, <laughs> right? Because even though he wasn't perfect, he was still so far ahead of where everybody else was. And this is a really big deal because part of the things we hear about America today is, is people want to highlight some of America's sins or some of the sins of some of the people from American history. For example, the thing that we hear so often, there, there was a, a new project out this last year called the 1619 Project that says America is super bad, America is super evil because America was birthed out of slavery and, and America, everything America has was because of slavery and America's bad and slavery and America's bad and slavery. And this is what we hear over and over and over. Now, unquestionably, slavery is bad. Unquestionably. But this is where context matters like it does for Noah. Context matters a little bit. Because if you look at the world history and, and just in the history of the, the North Atlantic slave trade, if you look at the world history of the Atlantic slave trade and largely one of the things that we hear today is that America was the, like the leader of slavery. 
So let me just, let me walk you back for a second. Let me just walk you through a few thoughts real quick. If you look at the African slave trade, it went from 1501 to 1875, respectively. At this time, there was roughly 12.7 million slaves that were brought out of Africa. And there is several different uh, websites you can go and you can find out more about this, but they've actually documented. There's a, the global slave, uh, globalslaveryindex.org, I believe is a website that actually tracks the history of slaves throughout really world history as much as possible with the African slave trade, they actually have all of the documents that were part of the ship that document every single slave on the ship and where they left port and where they entered port. And from this, this is where this map comes from. Of all the 12.7 million slaves left Africa, 43% went to Portugal or Brazil holdings, 24% went to holdings from Great Britain, 15% went to holdings from Spain, 11% went to holdings from France, 5% went to holdings of Dutch, 2.5% went to holdings of the United States, and 1% went to Denmark. This is not even debated historically. This is agreed to because it's been well historically documented by even liberal professors. So this is not even arguable. Why do we hear about America being the great evil when, and I'm not defending that what we did, absolutely there was evil things that happened in America. And and, and this is again, the reality of all nations. Every nation will have evil in that nation because every nation has people in that nation. And people do evil things. But that means that there were not just people in America, there were people in every nation of the world. So every nation of the world participated in evil things throughout the nation's history. And this is where today we we lose perspective. All nations had slavery. This was a global evil, not an American evil. This was something all the world had. And let me give you even some context for this. In the midst of slavery in the world, do you know that America was the very first nation in the history of the world to sign a law banning the slave trade? We did it March 2nd, 1807. Now, Great Britain did it like three weeks later. They did it March 25th, 1807. And some people would argue, well, Great Britain really, they should get credit for being the first nation because their law went into effect before ours because our law didn't go into effect until January 1st, 1808. Well, that's true. Their law went into effect first, but context. Their law did a gradual ending of the slave trade because they said if slave vessels or slave ships already have contracts, they can complete all of their contracts And then they have to stop. They can't do any new contracts. We said, no, 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 January 1st, nobody else can do this ever again. Great Britain still had slave ships that were doing slave trades after America ended everything. America is the very first nation in the slave trade. And at the time when we actually end slavery in 1865, we were the fourth nation in the history of the world to end slavery. Great Britain beat us in 1833. And then Denmark and then France, America was number four in the history of the world ending the slave trade. And there were 124 nations in the world at that time. And we were number four in ending slavery. Now, I don't know many people that talk about the fact that slavery was something around the world or the fact that America was one of the very first nations ending slavery. And we were the very first to sign a law abolishing the slave trade. If you look even right now today, do you know at the United Nations, there's 195 member nations, 94 of those nations still have not passed laws abolishing slavery in their nations. And that's why it's estimated there's roughly 40 million people that are actually slaves today. Right now, there's over 9 million slaves in Africa. Right now in India and China, all throughout the Middle East, slavery is still a real thing. But what's interesting is even according to studies today, is when you look at nations who are the most guilty of slavery and the nations doing the most to end slavery, America is number two in the world right now fighting against slavery. So not only do we end the slave trade first, we ended slavery fourth, one of the very early leaders of the world, we are still one of the most active in opposing slavery today Why don't we hear about the fact that even though we did a great evil, now I have no problem saying what we did was wrong, but let's at least be truthful and honest and saying that we were still one of the very first ones to do the right thing. 
and actually stopping in slavery. And this is where we just lose so much context. And one of the things, again, that matters is we don't celebrate a perfect nation. Rather, we celebrate how a perfect God used imperfect people in this imperfect nation and did great things through them. This nation is still one of the most blessed, successful, prosperous nations in the history of the world. And as we finish, I'm gonna tell you two stories about jacked up people that God used and did something great in their life, okay? The first one I'm gonna tell you about is John Morant. John Morant is the first African-American, the first black American to successfully evangelize Native Americans. And what he did to do this is rather remarkable. He was born a free black up in New York. His father passed away when he was young. His sister lived in South Carolina. She was married. So when he's 11 years old, he's finished his schooling, which was not totally uncommon back then. They finished very early. And then his mom sent him to live with his sister in South Carolina so that he could go find a trade and profession. So he goes marching through town. His sister was taking him to all the different possibilities of jobs. And while they were walking through town, he heard something at a shop that interested him. And he went over and looked and they were playing music. It was a music class. And he told his sister, I wanna take music. I wanna learn music. And she said, mom really wants you to get a real job. Like music isn't a real job. They write, mom, mom's like, of course you cannot do music. You cannot make a living as a musician. Get a real job. And he's so persistent that mom and sister finally agree, okay, you can take this music school for one year, but then you have to get an apprenticeship, a real job. So he goes for one year. But while he's here that one year, he is like the child prodigy. He becomes a master of every instrument he touches. The teacher, at the end of his first year, when he's supposed to now go to a real job, the teacher says, well, well, I wanna hire you and I want you to be my teaching assistant and help teach all the new students coming in. You're so impressive. And the teacher said, also, I often will go and I'll play these concerts for these people who wanna do dances or socials or whatever else. You can come with me. You can make money doing this. So he stays on, he gets a job there. He wrote his mom, he was 13 years old. He wrote his mom. And he started sending her money saying, mom, I got this job. Here's the money I made and I'm sending you part of it. He said in his own writings that he was without want for anything he desired. And he said, anything my heart desired, I would go and buy. He then, as he's sending money to his mom, his mom writes him back and says, uh, it's probably okay that you stay a musician, <laughs> right? She's like, you're making more than all of the rest of the family combined. You keep going, son, good job, right? As he's doing this, when he's 13, one day, he decides he's gonna go out and he's on his way with another 16-year-old and they're on their way to go perform at some kind of social. And on the way, they go through a town and they hear a man in the town and they said this man was hallooing at the crowd. And he thought, okay, this is weird. And they stopped to listen. And when they stopped to listen, his friend said, hey, let's go into this meeting and, and, and you should take your horn in and blow it really loud. It'll scare everybody. It'll be so funny and then we'll leave. And, and okay, they're teenagers. It's a dumb idea, but this is their idea. The building they were gonna go into was a church. The guy who was actually speaking at the time was the Reverend George Whitfield. So he goes in with his trumpet and he gets in the middle and he gets up and he takes a deep breath to blow his trumpet. And as he did this, George Whitfield pointed and said, prepare to meet thy God. And he says, as he did this, he just collapsed. He was paralyzed. He said, and I lost all control of my body and people tried to help me up and I just kept falling back down and I had no strength to stand. So they decided just to leave me there. So I had to lay on the floor and listen to this man the whole time. <laughs> so he listens to George Whitfield. At the end, they take him off into, the, into like this, this side dressing room and George Whitfield goes back and meets him and he says, the Lord Jesus has gotten a hold of thee at last. He said, I am gonna go on this journey. He says, but I'm gonna send the local pastor to come talk to you about what has happened and talk to you about Jesus. 
So George Whitfield leaves. Well, John Moran's feeling really bad. So they took him back to his sister's house and he's in his sister's house for three days feeling terrible. The pastor shows up and the pastor says, third day has now happened. Pastor says, I wanna pray for you. And John says, he reached down and grabbed my arms, but I, I was scared. And so I tried to get away, but I didn't really have control of my body. And I fell off the bed. So that it picked me up and put me on. He just grabbed my arms and held me. And he began to pray. And at the end of the prayer, he said, how do you feel? And I said, I feel terrible. He said, well, we should pray again. So he prayed again. And John said, I thought he was trying to kill me because I just kept feeling worse and worse. He said, well, how do you feel at the end of the second prayer? Well, I feel terrible, stop it. He said, no, we need to pray again. He prayed a third time. And he said, during the third prayer, a transformation happened. He said, well, all of a sudden I, I was consumed with joy and with peace and I felt so different and good. And, and I told him, I feel different. He said, Jesus has you now. And he began to share the gospel and begin to talk about what it meant to be a follower of Christ and follower of Jesus. And he got so passionate. He wanted to tell everybody about it. And at the time his family wasn't a Christian family. They weren't believers. So he begins telling them about how great Jesus is. And they're like, we've had enough. And they begin telling him to stop it, stop talking, don't do this anymore. He said, they begin to call me every name except that which was good. And he got so tired. He said, I went to live in the woods. And while I lived in the woods, he said, I met a Cherokee brave. And this brave was there for the season. He was hunting, he was gathering furs. And I lived with him for 10 weeks. And during this 10 weeks, I learned how to hunt. I learned how to fish. I learned how to gather furs. And I learned Cherokee. At the end of the 10 weeks, this Cherokee says, I'm going back to my tribe. Why don't you come with me? And he said, I had nowhere else to go. So I went with this Cherokee. But when they got to the tribe, the chief of the tribe saw this outsider. And the chief said, you take this man and you execute him. We don't let any outsiders in the tribe. And his friend tried to speak up for him and they, they took his friend away. And John says, they took me and they put me in a hut and the executioner came over and began to explain to me the way they were going to essentially burn him alive, burn him at the stake until he died. And so he's explaining what happened. And, and that night he says, I was so overwhelmed and overcome, but then I realized I was about to go see Jesus. So I got so excited. I began to pray and, and thank Jesus that I was gonna get to see him soon. And I was making so much noise that the guard opened up the hut and looked in and said, who are you talking to? He said, I'm talking to Jesus. And the guard looked and said, I don't see anybody. He said, well, Jesus is here. And the guard asked him well, who this Jesus was. And he began tell, talking to the guard about Jesus. The guard says, hang on, I need to get the executioner over here. He needs to hear this. He goes and gets the executioner. John tells the executioner about Jesus. The executioner says, I need to get the judge. He goes and gets the judge. They bring the judge. He tells the judge about Jesus. The judge says, well, we can't kill you now. He says, we need to take you before the chief. They go before the chief. He begins sharing the gospel. The chief converts to Christianity. The chief makes him a prince in the tribe. And the chief then asks him if he would live in the tribe and disciple all of the Indians about Jesus. Not only does he do this, the chief then says that we have lots of other tribes around and we would love for you to go share Jesus with these other tribes, but I'm afraid that they will respond to you the same way we did because they won't accept outsiders. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send my personal guard of my 50 bravest warriors to escort you from tribe to tribe so you can go share the gospel. This would be one of the coolest mission trips ever, <laughs> right? You send 50 Navy SEALs with me? Yes, right? That would be so awesome. So he not only is with the Cherokee, right? John starts off with the Cherokee, but then he goes to the Katasar tribe and then to the Husal tribe and then to the Creeks. And at the end of this, he's been now gone for roughly two years from his home. He decides he wants to go home. He goes back, he meets his family. And eventually as he talks to his family, his family again converts to Christianity. And, and this is, 
This is the first example in American history of a black man successfully evangelizing Indians or Native Americans. His entire story he wrote down. You actually can get on Google Books. You can read this whole thing. It's roughly 40 pages long, but this is an amazing story. And this is the point. John Morant was not a perfect person, but this is the example of a perfect God using an imperfect person and doing something great through them. And this is the history we have full in our nation. Last story I'm gonna tell you as we finish up is a story of President Dwight Eisenhower. Again, the story of an imperfect man that God used in great ways. Dwight was born actually in Denison, Texas. His family, when he was young, moved up to Kansas. While they were in Kansas, when Dwight was 13 years old, he was running on their family farm. He fell down, he scraped his knee, which is not a big deal. We would tell every kid, right, get up, shake it off, you're fine. And he did, he got up, he shook it off. But back then, this was 1903, back then there's no Neosporin, right? There's, there's no antiseptic antibiotics. So if that scrape gets infective, it could be lethal. It could be deadly. His scrape did get infective. The Sunday, the family was going to church. And, and, and this is a picture of their family from 1902. This is the year before it happened. This is Dwight on the left. The family was going to church. And so mom says, all right, everybody get ready. And Dwight says, I just feel terrible. I feel so bad. So mom said, okay, you can stay home, get some rest. So they go to church. When they come back, they see that Dwight is unconscious in bed, running a crazy fever. Mom screams, gets dad in the room. They send dad to the doctor. Dwight's coming in and out of conscious. He's very delirious. And so when the doctor gets there, the doctor says, let's see what's wrong. They start feeling, and his leg was incredibly swollen. They had to actually cut his pants off because they couldn't pull him off. His leg was too swollen. They had to cut his boot off. And they looked at the leg, and it was purple and black going up his leg into his body. The doctor says, that's an infection. If it reaches his body, it could kill him. So we have to stop the infection. The best way I know to stop the infection is we need to amputate it. The doctor said, let me run to town. I'm gonna get my saw and we'll come back and we will amputate the leg. Dwight was conscious long enough to hear the doctor say, we're gonna amputate his leg. And Dwight says, no. So Dwight starts screaming for his older brother, Edgar, to come in the room. He says, Edgar, get in here. He says, don't let the doctor take my leg. I would rather die than lose my leg. Don't let him do it. So the doctor comes back, but Edgar's promised he wouldn't let Dwight lose his leg. So the doctor goes upstairs and Edgar is blocking the door. And the doctor says, Edgar, you gotta get out of the way. I gotta get in to help your brother. He's very sick. And he says, sorry, doc, I gave my word. You can't go in there. And the doc, I mean, you can imagine, right? This is, this is a teenage kid telling the doctor and the doctor's like, Edgar, okay, your brother is actually dying and I can save him, but you have to get out of the way. Sorry, doc, I gave my word. You can't go in there. This goes on and the doctor finally is exasperated. He says, Edgar, your brother is about to die. And if he dies, it will be your fault because I could have saved him. Sorry, doc, I gave my word. The doctor turns to leave and the family said when he left, he threw up his hand in the air and said, the only thing that'll save this boy's life now is a miracle. And when he said that, it was like the light bulb went off for mom and dad. They had just come back from church, right? They said, we need to pray. So Edgar and mom and dad gathered around Dwight's bed that night. And then every morning and every evening, it became part of the family's prayers. They would go around Dwight and they would pray for Dwight. And at the end of a week, his leg was beginning to get better. The discoloration was going down. The swelling was going down. They called the doctor back. He says, I don't know what's happening, but it's getting better. At the end of two weeks, there was no more infection. There was no more swelling, no more discoloration. His leg was totally back to normal. The reason I point this out is because one of the things that is very noted about Dwight Eisenhower is he was the commander of the Allied forces during World War II. But let me point out, had Dwight lost his leg, he couldn't have entered the military much less ever become the commanding officer. And remember, Winston Churchill was the guy who 
pointed out Dwight and said, he needs to be the one, the commander of all the allied troops because this guy is the best mind, the, the brightest, right? He, this is the guy that needs to lead us. Dwight was a brilliant guy. Had it not been for God doing a miracle, Dwight never could have gotten there in the first place. Right, so God's hand was on Dwight for something significant. After the war, Dwight becomes the president of the United States. As the president, Dwight wrote in his journal, before he is sworn in, before the inauguration happens, Dwight writes in his journal, and he says, I am afraid that America is forgetting God and we are becoming too secular. He says, we have to, as a nation, remember God or our nation will not work. So one of the things he did is during his inauguration, he actually led the nation in a prayer where he said, I, I want people to remember God. And do we have that video we can play real quick, guys? Okay, this is a video, you can find it on YouTube, of Dwight leading the nation in prayer. My friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts that I deem appropriate to this moment, would you permit me the privilege of uttering a little private prayer of my own? And I ask that you bow your heads. Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, my associates in the, my future associates in the executive branch of government join me in beseeching that thou wilt make full and complete all right, for the sake of time, we can go ahead and stop this. It goes on for roughly a minute and a half. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. The point is, he wants a nation to remember God. So as president, he actually leads a nation in prayer to remember who God is. One of the very cool things we have at Wall Builders is actually his handwritten prayer that he prayed at that inauguration. This prayer, we, we own a lot of really cool things related to American history and especially faith elements, but Dwight didn't stop with just praying and reminding the nation of God in prayer. Dwight actually started the National Prayer Breakfast. Still goes on every single year, where every year we're gonna pray, we're gonna acknowledge God. We want the nation to join us. We wanna remember who God is. Also, Dwight went to church in Washington, D.C., the pastor of the church in Washington, D.C. was the Reverend George Dougherty. George Dougherty had found out that his, and they'd only immigrated to America like two years prior. He was from Scotland. And his son had told him that when they say the Pledge of Allegiance, it said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Oh, there wasn't God yet. And this pastor heard that we were pledging allegiance to a nation with no acknowledgement of God. He said, you should never pledge allegiance to anything that isn't under God. He says, we only submit to God. And if we're a nation under God, then you can pledge this nation, but only if it's under God. He gives this whole sermon. It was called Under God, but it was regarding the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, Dwight Eisenhower was in the front row hearing this prayer. At the end of this, he called a little congressional council and said, guys, we need to put Under God in the pledge. So Congress and passes, and he signs putting under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. Also, he's the guy that and right now in the U.S. Capitol building, there is a prayer chapel for every congressman, every senator, people that go before they do the business of the American people, they can actually go reach out to God. There's a stained glass that he had in there. It's from uh, Psalm 16, one of the verse around George Washington. It says, preserve me, O God, for indeed do I put my trust. Dwight Eisenhower is also the one who put in God we trust on our dollar bills. Uh, Abraham Lincoln with Salmon Chase put it on coins back in the Civil War, but it wasn't on all our bills. Dwight said it needs to be on all our bills. And he's the one that made the national motto in God we trust. All of this, and by the way, there's more, but this is an example. All of this he does when he first ran for president, he said, I'm afraid America's becoming too secular and we are forgetting God. I will point out if he thought we were too secular back then, he would be staggered to see where we are today. Why has America 
enjoyed more stability, more prosperity, more freedoms than any nation in the history of the world, I would argue it's from something we learn in the Bible. Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. America's never been a perfect nation, and, and I don't claim that we ever were. But America, more than any other nation, has sought to be biblical. And by the way, a lot of people point to really sinful moments in America's history, of, of atrocities of American history. I will point out any atrocity you point to in American history, I can point to the Christian leaders and pastors who are the ones leading the fight to end that atrocity. And it's why those things ended in America faster than anywhere else. Who were the leaders of the abolition movement? Pastors, churches, Christians. You pick, you pick an issue and I will point out the Christians and leaders who were involved. And this is the point. Our nation more than any other nation, arguably than Israel, right? In the history of the world has strived to put God first. And that's why we've been such a blessed nation. This is where America has been unique. And if you wanna know more about this, we actually have a new book that's coming out. It's available for pre-sale on our website called The American Story. We go from Christopher Columbus all the way through Abraham Lincoln, just telling the story of America, of how God intervened and used imperfect people. It did something really special. We talk about some of the atrocities. We talk about some of the leaders that God raised up to help put an end to some of those atrocities. It's the reason America's so, so unique. We have lots of other things too. We have what's called the Founder's Bible, where it tracks how the founding fathers used the Bible to shape so much of America. We have a digital form. We actually have even apps on the app store. We have all kinds of resources, some in the, in the lobby. If you guys wanna learn more about some of our history, uh, on our website, we have tons of stuff. We're also all over social media. And so I'm just giving a plug. The reason we're doing this, I'm not just trying to grow followers on social media, it's because we we do videos every single week, actually sometimes every single day, talking about American history related to culture so we understand what we're hearing around us isn't always what's true, what is actually true. And so as we finish, let me give you one final thought. As we look at America and we are praying for God to restore America, one of the things the Bible tells us is that when you look at a nation, it is righteousness that exalts a nation. And this is not dependent on any nation. This is just the way God works. This would be true in India or North Korea or Russia or Sudan. This is true for any nation is righteousness is what exalts a nation. But here's now where it's a challenge for us because we live in a culture that doesn't know what's true and they don't know what's righteous anymore. So we cannot have an expectation that culture will restore truth or righteousness. It's only people that know truth and righteousness that can restore it. And if we want to see America become a blessed or great nation again, or maybe you don't believe we ever were. Okay, let's say, fine, we never were. If you want us to ever be a great nation, righteousness, right? And understand, even as we look at elections, righteousness does not deal with personalities. Righteousness deals with policies, okay? Because the Bible absolutely explains that God is the author and giver of life believes that God gives us the freedom to choose him, the freedom of religion, the freedom of worship. That God says, if you are a friend of Israel, right, I will bless those who bless you and curse those. The Bible gives us some ideas of what righteousness might look like. It's not about a personality. Because if you look throughout the Bible, God used all kinds of personalities and some of them were really jacked up. But the hope for us is that we have a perfect God who uses imperfect people and does great things through them. And this is not only the prayer for us, this is the prayer for our nation. Thank you for listening to the Sojourn Church podcast. For more messages or content similar to this, please visit our website. If you would like to support our ministry, please visit the first link in the show description or visit sojournchurch.org give.